1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, the Apostle Paul is following here the normal pattern for writing a letter in ancient times. When we write a letter, generally we put to who it's to up at the top, and we put who it's from at the very bottom. That's not how they did it in the ancient world. Their format for writing a letter was you would start out by saying who it was writing the letter. Then after you introduced yourself, you would introduce who it was that you were writing to. And the person is Paul. It would be fruitful for us tonight, though we're not going to do it. It would be fruitful for us just to give a summary of the life of Paul. This most amazing man. This man who was used in such a remarkable fashion by God to be one of the true trailblazers of the early church. But Paul had an extensive history of contact with the city of Corinth. It began when he established the church in Corinth, coming there after he visited a city called Athens, and he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Get that in your mind right away. Paul knew these people. He lived with them for a year and a half. He founded their church. The foundational members of the church, he led to the Lord. Paul knew these people. Now, after he had left the congregation at Corinth and gone on to do missionary work in other cities, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Corinth from the city of Ephesus. We do not have this letter. It's mentioned for us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. This letter's lost. Now, don't let that trouble you. We shouldn't think that everything that Paul ever put his pen to was inspired scripture. His laundry list was not inspired scripture. His his greeting card list was not inspired scripture. No, those things which were genuinely, perfectly inspired by the Holy Spirit were preserved. So Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus, but that letter's lost. Then Paul received reports from people in Chloe, Chloe is a woman we're going to be introduced to in the future verses. He received reports from people in Chloe's household about disturbances in Corinth. People came to him and said, hey, Paul, bad things are happening back at this church that you founded. And they probably also brought to him a lot of questions and issues that were going on in the hearts and minds of the people, the Christians, I should say, of the city of Corinth. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to respond to these reports. Now, some letters in the New Testament are majestic in that they set out a whole system of theology. Ephesians is like that. Romans is like that. They weren't written to address any particular problem. They were written to address grand theological issues. 1 Corinthians is not like that. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was meant to put out fires. There were problems blazing at the Corinthian church. And Paul is writing this letter saying, hey, wait a minute. Let's think about some of this stuff and let me show you a better way. But remember that because of all the time that Paul spent in the city of Corinth and because of all the letters he wrote to them, we know more about the Christians at Corinth than we know about any other church in the New Testament. Now notice how Paul describes himself in verse 1. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. 
Now, I don't know if it's evident in your Bible, but in my Bible, those words to be in the phrase called to be an apostle are in italics. You know what that means. It means that those are inserted by the translator. The original text literally reads, Paul, a called apostle. You see, at the very outset of the letter, indeed in the very first few words, Paul is fearlessly declaring his apostolic credentials. Now, if you read 1 and 2 Corinthians carefully, you come away understanding something. That Paul's standing, that Paul's authority as an apostle was not appreciated among the Christians of Corinth. They didn't respect Paul very much. And so Paul's laying it on the line. He says, listen, let me make something perfectly clear in the first few words I write to you. I am a called apostle. That's the kind of apostle I am. He says, I know I'm not like one of the 12 apostles. By the way, I think some people really use that against Paul. You're not one of the 12. You didn't walk around with Jesus. You're not Peter, James, or John. Come on, Paul. You say, listen, I have a calling no less than theirs. As a matter of fact, Paul says, Paul, a called apostle, look at it in verse 1, of Jesus Christ through the will of God. You see, Paul has already begun contending with the Christians at Corinth. He's already figured, like, grab their lapels and say, you better believe I'm an apostle, and I'm an apostle, not because a bunch of people elected me, not because previous apostles appointed me. I am an apostle because Jesus Christ called me an apostle because of the will of God, not the will of any man. Now, what is an apostle of Jesus Christ? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul will deal more fully with what makes a person an apostle. There's a movie out right now called The Apostle. And it's a very sympathetic portrayal of a Pentecostal preacher who decides to call himself uh, an apostle and go around. And, and uh, he may have been a preacher and he may have been a church organizer, but in biblical terms, he's certainly no apostle. We're going to learn more about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But, however, we can just learn something right now, just from the basic meaning of the Greek word. The Greek word is apostolos, and we just transfer it over into English and call it apostle. But the Greek word apostolos literally means a special ambassador. Paul was a special ambassador of Jesus Christ to the world and to the church. It's as if Jesus sent him and said, Paul, I want you to be my special ambassador to the world. I'm going to use you to speak to the nations, just like we, our nation, would send forth an ambassador to speak on the behalf of our president to somebody else. So Paul has been sent forth by Jesus Christ to speak on behalf of Jesus to the world and to the church. I think it's remarkable that you can't get past the first few words of the letter without understanding that Paul is thinking about the critical issues that he needs to communicate to the Corinthian Christians. This is a letter that Paul has thought very carefully about. So he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now this man, Sosthenes, is a very interesting man, and he's perhaps mentioned for us in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, as the head of the Corinthian synagogue, who was beaten because he persecuted Paul. Let, let, let me paint the scenario for you, and if you want to do some background reading on this, when you go home, read Acts chapter 18. Read Acts chapter 17, too, because it gives you good lead into chapter 18. And go ahead and read 15 and 16. and then Just do a bunch of reading in Acts, and it'll give you a good, good background for 1 Corinthians. 
But when Paul first came to Corinth, the ruler of the synagogue, who was sort of like the pastor over the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue was a man named Crispus. But you know what happened to Crispus? Crispus got saved. Crispus believed on Jesus. And you know what happened to his job as ruler of the synagogue when he trusted in Jesus? He got fired. So they replaced him. They replaced him with a man named Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes was a Jewish leader, the leader of the synagogue in the city of Corinth, and the Jews were persecuting Paul and the other disciples. Well, when the Roman authorities got hold of this, and the Roman authorities were oftentimes notoriously anti-Semitic, when they got wind of this, they used this as an excuse to beat up on this man Sosthenes. So when Sosthenes tried to persecute Paul, Sosthenes got beat up. And that's the last that we hear of him in the book of Acts. But who is with Paul writing to the Corinthians? Sosthenes, wouldn't you love to know that story? Can't you wait to get to heaven, meet this guy Sosthenes, say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're getting beat because you tried to persecute Paul, and the next thing we hear about you is that you're saved and that you're... You got to tell me that one. And you'll sit down over a cup of coffee or the heavenly equivalent, and uh, he will... Uh, He'll tell you all about it. Now, it would be common in the ancient world to dictate a letter to a scribe who would write it all down. It's probable that Sosthenes was Paul's penman for this. Paul dictated it, Sosthenes wrote it, because Paul doesn't speak in the we very much. It's not as if Sosthenes was a significant collaborator, but he was probably the penman for the letter. So Paul says, Sosthenes, take a letter. We have to write to our friends in Corinth. And so he brings that up in verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, called on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now notice this. Who is the letter written to? To the church of God. Now most people today associate the word church with a building where Christians meet. And I suppose we could work really hard to buck that, but it's just kind of ingrained in our speaking, and I don't know if we're ever going to get very far away from that. It's just the way most people think. But the Greek word that's translated church here is the Greek word ekklesia, and it's a non-religious word. It was a non-religious word for an assembly of people, Typically, people who were gathered together for a specific purpose. It wasn't just like a mob, but it was a group of people gathered together for a certain purpose. An assembly is a good translation of the word. Now, this Greek word ekklesia that we translate church, it has both a Gentile and a Jewish background. When you said ekklesia to a Gentile, they thought oftentimes of like a political gathering or a social gathering or some kind of gathering of people who were got together for some civic or certain purpose. When you said ekklesia to a Jew, they knew from their Greek-translated Jewish Bible, the Septuagint, they knew from that that there are several times in the Old Testament where the congregation of Israel, where the nation of Israel was called the ecclesia of the Lord, or the ecclesia of God. So when Paul says the church of God, it immediately conjures up images. But I'm fascinated by the fact that the church was a secular term. So he just doesn't say to the ecclesia in Corinth, because that could refer to anybody. He says to the church of God, 
which is at Corinth. But notice this. This isn't the only church of God. This is the church of God, which is at Corinth. These are the believers gathered together there. And then he uses that word there, that phrase, that lets them know where they're at, at Corinth. My friends, Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. And I just hope, in, in a few moments here, just to paint a picture, and I, I do hope you'll listen and pay attention, because this is essential for our understanding of this book. Corinth was a community very much like Southern California. It was prosperous, it was busy, it was growing. It had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix of people populating it. It was a center of sports. It was a center of government. It was a center of military. It was a center of business. Now, Paul first came to the city of Corinth about nine years before he wrote this letter, in about the year 50 AD. By the time Paul had visited, the city had already been famous for hundreds of years. Ancient writers considered Corinth to be rich and prosperous, always to be wealthy and great. Now, in the year 146 B.C., again, that's about 100 years before, excuse me, it's about, uh, and, it's about 200 years before Paul came there. About 200 years before Paul ever came to the city, Corinth was completely destroyed by the Romans. But Julius Caesar rebuilt the city 100 years later. So, about 100 years before Paul was born, the city was rebuilt, and it was glorious. Now, many different things made the city of Corinth famous. There was pottery and a material called Corinthian brass, which was a mixture of gold, silver, and copper. And and the Corinthian brass was known all around the world as being a famous material used in cups and vessels and such. World-renowned athletic contests known as the Isthmian Games were held at the Temple of Poseidon in Corinth every two years. The Isthmian Games were second in status only to the Olympic Games. That's how famous they were in the ancient world. There were temples to Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Isis, Serapis, and Asclepius, among others. All of those had temples to their honor in the city of Corinth. But the most prominent religious center in the city was the temple of Aphrodite. And the temple of Aphrodite had in its employment more than a thousand female prostitutes slash priestesses in their service. In other words, there were a thousand female prostitutes who were the so-called priestesses of the temple of of, uh, Aphrodite, and you would worship, so to speak, Aphrodite by employing the services of one of these temple prostitutes. Now you might say, wow, I mean, that's a pretty rough trade, but you see, there were a lot of uh, sailors always in Corinth because of its location. Corinth was situated... Uh, because of its unique location, it was situated on a very narrow neck of land on a peninsula. And instead of sailing all around the peninsula, what sailors would do is they would stop at the one end of the, of the, um, uh, of the peninsula, and then they would cut overland and avoid going around the whole peninsula, and overland was through the city of Corinth. There was a four and a half mile wide track that was called the Diocles, over which vessels were dragged upon. In other words, they would take these boats out of the water, put them on a track, and roll them for four and a half miles, and you'd go right by the city of Corinth. And so there were sailors in town all the time. 
Because by doing that, you escaped a very treacherous place of navigation. This place was so bad that you escaped. It was called uh, Malia. They had proverbs like saying, Let him who sails round Malia forget his home. And let him who sails around Malia first make his will. So if you could avoid it, you would. And you avoid it by docking at Corinth, dragging your boat overland, and then picking it up on the other side, putting it back in the water and sailing across. So this would take a few days. There were always a lot of sailors with time to kill in Corinth. And so the Corinthian people, just because of the whole setting, the prosperity, the travelers, the commerce, all of these things joined together, made the Corinthian people known around the world for their partying, their drunkenness, and their loose sexual morals. The Greeks made up a word, Corinthazomai, Corinthazomai, and it was well known in the Roman Empire. You know what the word Corinthazomai meant? It meant literally to live like a Corinthian. And when you said, dude, you're Corinthazomai, that was a cold put down. You meant to that person, you are sexually out of control. You are totally promiscuous. If you called somebody, uh, if you said to somebody, you live like a Corinthian. Now, Whenever they showed a Corinthian on the stage in a Greek play, the Corinthian was always drunk. It was like the standard gag. Here comes the Corinthian, and he'd be falling down drunk. My friends, this was the deserved reputation of the Corinthian city all around the world. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, speaks about Corinth's sexual immorality. He says, quote, The Asclepius room in the present museum in Corinth provides provides mute evidence to this facet of city life. Here on one wall are a large number of clay statues of human genitals that have been offered to the God of healing for that part of of the body, apparently ravaged by venereal disease. And then Fee sums up his analysis of Corinth by writing this, quote, All of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was all at once New York, Los Angeles, and a Las Vegas of the ancient world. Leon Morris, the commentator, says that the city of Corinth was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Now, this was the reputation, deservedly so, of the city of Corinth all over the ancient world. And so do you see what verse 2 says? Look at it again. It's mind-blowing, friends. He said, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So you have something very good, the church of God, at something very bad, the city of Corinth. And understanding this tension between the church and the city is important to understanding this whole letter of 1 Corinthians. The bottom line is this. Is the church influencing the city or is the city influencing the church? And my friends, do you think this issue is passed from the scene? Do we live in Corinth today? Absolutely we do. Not only do we live in Corinth, but the same issues that they grappled with, my friends, we're facing them square in the eye today. G. Campbell Morgan says this in his introduction to 1 Corinthians. He says, The measure of failure on the part of the church is the measure in which she has allowed herself to be influenced by the spirit of the age. We are sometimes told today that what the church supremely needs is that she should catch the spirit of the age. A thousand times no. What the church supremely needs is to correct the spirit of the age. 
So Paul continues on with his description. He says, look at this, and he just, it blows your mind. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now again, do you notice those words to be? They're in italics, aren't they? What's it literally? Called saints. Paul says, hey, the church of God, which is at Corinth, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, you're called saints. Now, the idea behind sanctified and saints is very much the same. Both of them have the idea of being set apart from the world and set apart unto the Lord. And this blows my mind. Do you understand that Paul writes, and the first words he says about the Corinthians is that you all are sanctified, you all are saints. Now, friends, there is a lot in this letter of 1 Corinthians that is unflattering to the Christians of Corinth. They're shown at various times to have morality problems, doctrine problems, church government problems, spiritual gift problems, church service problems, and a serious authority problem. It would be pretty easy for us to think that they weren't even saved. But my friends, they were. They were called saints. And by the way, you might think that that's mere flattery. That Paul's just kind of buttering up before he bops him around a little bit. (laughs) My friends, it's not just mere flattery. This isn't just Paul's way of preparing them for a harsh rebuke. The Corinthian Christians are called saints, but it wasn't based on the outward performance of the Corinthians. It was founded on a promise of God. Do you know what God told Paul in Acts chapter 18, verse 10? Paul told Paul regarding the city of Corinth, he said, I have many people in this city. God told that to Paul. You know what? That echoed through Paul's mind. He's hearing about all these problems of the church in Corinth. And let me tell you, when we get in this letter, it's a mess, ladies and gentlemen. It's a mess in the church at Corinth. And you're just going to be scratching your head thinking, are these people even saved? And Paul was probably thinking that sometimes too. He heard about all the mess. The report came to him. What's going on over there? Paul's thinking. But the words keep echoing from his mind that the Lord said, I have many people in this city. And Paul said, okay, Lord, I, I believe that. At the end of verse 2, Paul says, With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now in his first few words again, Paul is laying another foundation for a fundamental issue of this letter. The fundamental issue that he's addressing right here, a theme that's going to be repeated often in this letter, is the idea of Christian unity based on the common lordship of Jesus Christ. The Corinthian Christians are called saints, but this is not exclusive to them. They are saints along with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is their Lord and our Lord, and because we share a common Lord, we share an essential unity. So now he greets them in verse 3, saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Customary greeting of Paul's. There's a lot that could be said about it. We'll go on just understand. This is a customary greeting of Paul. Greeting them from both the Roman world, saying grace, and the Hebrew world, saying peace or shalom. Now, in verse 3, he goes on and he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's remember that Lord Jesus Christ is not the first, middle, and last name of Jesus. 
properly speaking, you wouldn't go up to Jesus and say, Mr. Christ, may I speak with you? Reverend Christ? No, not at all. Lord is a title. And it's a title that connects Jesus to Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's one that proclaims his deity. Lord is a title. Jesus is his name, the given name, which of course is a Greek translation of the Jewish name, Joshua. And so, Lord, Jesus, and then the last part, Christ. That's another title for Jesus, meaning Messiah. And so when we say Lord Jesus Christ, we're basically saying God, Jesus, Messiah. It's commonly repeated here in the letter. Verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm blown away. The first thing that Paul does in this letter, after the greeting, after the brief introduction, is he says a prayer of thanksgiving for the Corinthians. Now friends, let's just get down to where the rubber meets the road. In the coming weeks and in the rest of this letter, Paul is going to spend most of the letter rebuking sin and correcting error. Yet he is still sincerely thankful for God's work in the Corinthians. You know, a lot of times those people who feel like their calling in the body of Christ is to rebuke rebuke sin and to correct error, and I suppose there is definitely a need for that in the body of Christ. I mean, there is a need for people to have a calling to rebuke sin and to correct error. But I think they should follow Paul's example. They should communicate encouragement with their rebuke. And the first words that Paul wants the Corinthians to hear after his introduction is, I'm thankful for you guys. And specifically, Paul thanks God, notice it in verse 4, for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. Every good thing that the the Corinthian Christians have from God has come to them by grace. God has given to them freely by his own reasons. And notice the effect of grace in the life of the Corinthian Christians. Verse 5 and 6, he says, You were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance, in all knowledge, and the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, and that you come short in no gift. And then finally, they're waiting for Jesus' return, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let's look at these good points about the church of Corinth. They were a rich church. First of all, they spoke about Jesus and they knew Jesus. That's what it means. You were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. They talked about Jesus and they knew about Jesus. Well, that's something to be thankful, right? Well, you could have a church that's, oh, dead on, or there's nothing goofy going on here. Boy, we're right on the line, but nobody talks about Jesus. The people don't leave the doors of that church talking about Jesus. That's not how it was at the Corinthian church. Sure, they had their problems. But friends, they talked about Jesus. I'll tell you what else that they had. They were abounding in spiritual gifts. 
Did you notice it here? It says here in verse 7 that you come short in no gift. Well, that's an impressive thing too. And then finally, they lived life in anticipation of Jesus' coming. Verse 7 says that they were eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of God could be seen in the Corinthians by what they were saying, by what they were learning, by a supernatural element in their lives, that's the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and by their expectant anticipation of Jesus' return. And friends, those are pretty impressive things. I think a lot of our churches today could do with a lot more of those things. So when Paul looked at the Corinthian church, he could say, listen, these people proclaim Jesus. They know about Jesus. Uh, theirs is the superna- there are the supernatural gifts of God among them, and they're excited about Jesus' return. My friends, whatever problems that the Corinthians had, they had some pretty impressive strong points. You just wonder if that much can be said about many churches today. It would be very easy for us to be prideful and say, well, we don't have the Corinthians problems. Yeah, but do we have their positives? Yeah, fine, you can say, well, we don't have their problems. But friends, do you have the positives that the Corinthian church had? Yet these positives were no great credit to the Corinthian Christians themselves. These positives were the work of the grace of God in them. Can you notice one thing here? It says in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 7, that they came short in no gift. Paul thanks God for the spiritual gifts exercised among the Corinthians, even though those gifts were causing some trouble. Paul recognized that the gifts themselves were not the problem, but wrong attitudes and beliefs about the gifts. You see, the Corinthian Christians were gifted yet carnal. I like what Spurgeon says about this. He says, Should it not show us that gifts are nothing unless they are laid on the altar of God? That it is nothing to have the gift of oratory? That it is nothing to have the power of eloquence? That it is nothing to have the learning? That it is nothing to have the influence unless they all be dedicated to God and consecrated to His service? Gifted, yet they still had problems. Now, did you notice verse 8? I think that's precious as Paul kind of concludes this section of thanksgiving. He talks about Jesus, who will also confirm you to the end. The Corinthian Christians had their strong points. They had their weak points. Paul praises God for the positives, and he expresses confidence that God will take care of the weak points and will confirm them to the end. Paul isn't saying, listen, you guys are this close to being kicked out of the kingdom. Paul says, no, God's going to confirm you to the end. This is a good church. It's positive. There's a lot of good things going for you. I'm going to have to correct you about many things, but God is going to confirm you to the end. Why? Because they're so great? No, so that they would be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 9, because God is faithful. That's the whole reason why. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So friends, that's enough with the uh, complimenting. (laughs) Now in verse 10, Paul's going to address issue number one, divisions. 
It says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I'm amazed at how that starts in verse 10. It starts, I plead with you, brethren. My friends, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had a commission straight from Jesus. He didn't have to plead with anybody. He could go in and command. He could go in and lay down the law. But that wasn't Paul's heart and that wasn't his style. He came in and he said, I plead with you, brethren, even though he had the authority in the church, even though he had the right and the authority to command the Corinthian Christians in these matters, instead, with a loving heart, he begs them. And he pleads with them to be unified as believers. And then he says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. The Greek word for divisions there is schismata. And we derive our English word schism from this Greek word. It does not really mean a party or a faction. Literally what this word division means is to tear or to rip. Paul's plea is that they would stop ripping each other apart and tearing up the body of Christ. And the contrast to being divided like this, the contrast to these visions is to be perfectly joined together. Did you see that in verse 10? But that you be perfectly joined together. My friends, joined together there was a medical word. It was used to knitting together bones that had been broken or joining together a joint that had been dislocated. In other words, the disunion is unnatural. Your bones weren't intended to be broken. Your shoulder wasn't intended to be dislocated. If it is, it's causing pain and it needs to be corrected. So it is in the body of Christ. When there's divisions, when there's this ripping of the body of Christ, that's not how God intended it to be. So he intends for those things to be healed. Now he's going to talk about the foolishness of their divisions in verse 11. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Notice this. Apparently these people from Chloe's household, most people speculate that Chloe was a businesswoman and she had sent out some of her representatives or salesmen or whatever out to do some work on her behalf. And they came upon Paul as uh, there he was in another city. And they said, Paul, here's the problems going on in the city of Corinth. And so this was reported to him that there were contentions among you. Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the Corinthian church was suffering from quarreling and conflict, and the conflict had made them divide up into parties or cliques, each one having their own head. Oh, well, there it was. There's the I am of Paul party. It was the Paul party. And they declared, we're following in the footsteps of the man who founded this church. The apostle Paul founded this church, and we're the ones really right with God. We're following in his footsteps. Well, then you have the I am of Apollos faction, right? The Apollos party. And they said, we know from the scriptures that Apollos was a very eloquent, gifted, impressive man, a very 
just a very impressive man. And Paul wasn't very impressive. So the Apollos party said, we're following in the footsteps of a man who's great in power and in spiritual gifts. And he's an impressive man. We're the ones really right with God. Oh, and then you had the Cephas party. Everybody's saying, I am of Cephas. Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. So you had the Peter party, and and they're the ones who said, listen, we're following in the footsteps of the man who's the first among all the apostles. Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he's our man. We're the ones really right with God. And then here's my favorite one. I am of Christ. You know, the Jesus party. They said, you guys are so carnal. You're following after mere men. We're following in the footsteps of one no less than Jesus himself. We're the ones really right with God. My friends, I want you to notice something. Neither Paul, nor Apollos, nor Peter, nor Jesus were there in the Corinthian church trying to rally a party around themselves. This was not about Paul, it was not about Peter, it was not about Apollos, and it certainly wasn't about Jesus. The Corinthians boasting about their party leaders was really boasting about themselves. The point wasn't Paul's so great, it's I'm so great for following Paul. It's not that Jesus is so great, it's that I'm so great for following Jesus. I'm more spiritual than you. You guys got it all wrong. Now, I need to make a point here, and I think it's a very important point to make. Division is ungodly. But it is not wrong to make distinctions between churches and ministers. My friends, God has made different churches and different ministries with different callings and different characters because the job of preaching the gospel is too big for any one person or any one group. And so there would be nothing wrong with a person saying, you know what, I really liked it when Apollos was here preaching. For some reason, I got a lot more out of his preaching than I did out of Peter's. That would not be wrong. That's just making a distinction. Because you know what, there's somebody else in the group who says, boy, I don't know where you get that. I got so much more out of Peter than Apollos. Then why do you think God has an Apollos and a Peter and a Paul? Because no one person can minister to everybody. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, I bless God that there are so many denominations. He said, if there were not men who differed a little in their creeds, we should never get as much gospel as we do. God has sent different men to defend different kinds of truth. But Christ defended and preached all. Christ's testimony was perfect. But we're not. And so it's not wrong to make distinctions. It's one thing to prefer one minister to another, but we cannot divide into cliques behind one minister or another. That's where it becomes sinful. That's where it becomes divisive. And so he addresses this in verse 13 by simply saying, is Christ divided? Okay, tell me what party Jesus belongs to. What, Jesus belongs to your party, but he doesn't belong to this party? Is Christ divided? These cliques were ignoring the truth of the unity over all diversity in the church, even though all the cliques were being done in the name of spirituality. My friends, spiritual elitism is abhorrent no matter whose name it is practiced in. And it's almost an irresistible temptation for whatever group you're a part of. 
I look at Calvary Chapel and the Calvary Chapel movement, and I look at how God has used uh, this movement to impact a whole generation, and I praise God for it. But God forbid if I or if anybody else should go around thinking that Calvary Chapel is the only place where God is working, the only place where God is moving, that it's the only spout where God's glory comes out. Now, I love the the philosophy of ministry and the style of ministry and the distinctives of ministry of Calvary Chapel. And, and for me, I know that's what God's called me to, and I know that that's the, the ministry focus that he wants me to have. But God bless my brothers and those of other groups who are doing other things. God bless them. Paul's going to speak about this issue even more carefully, but it's, it's very important that we don't get a spiritual elitism. There's a story about an old, contentious Quaker who went from one church to another, one meeting to another, and he never found the true church. So someone once asked him, well, what church are you in now? And he said, oh, I found the true church at last. And the guy said, wow. He goes, how many belong to it? He said, just my wife and myself. And I'm not so, so, so sure about her sometimes. <laughs> so he said, well, that's what it's going to be if you're going to be that particular, isn't it? Now, what I think is really funny in verse 13, and, you know, I tell you, this is just, this is one of the reasons why I just cherish the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians so much. They show a humor that Paul has that I think is just striking. Look at verse 13. Paul said, is Christ divided? And then he says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, you got to think that Paul's cracking up as he's saying this. Because you guys are so foolish. How could you ever have a party after me? Do you think I was crucified for you? Even more foolish than dividing Jesus is to center parties in the church around men. When Paul puts it like this, you would hope that they would almost chuckle and see how foolish it is to focus on anybody but Jesus. Now let's wrap it up here with verses 14 through 17. It says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized a household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, apparently, some of these Corinthian Christians, probably especially those of the Paul party, you know, yeah, Paul, he's our man. They probably made a big deal of the fact that they had been baptized by Paul. Well, who were you baptized by? Oh, just Sosthenes? Well, let me tell you, brother, I was baptized by Paul. Ooh, you know? And because it was becoming a divisive issue... Paul was grateful that he hadn't baptized very many of them. Now, Paul did baptize a few of them in Corinth. And uh, some of these names are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. But Paul says, listen, I I thank God I didn't baptize more because he says Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, I think this is very interesting. Paul isn't trying to focus on this specific issue that I'm going to bring up, but he really answers it. There's a doctrine out and about, and you may not even know it by this name, but it's a doctrine known as baptismal regeneration. And what the doctrine of baptismal regeneration teaches is that you are not born again until you're baptized. You're not saved unless you're baptized. 
That is when you are born again. Now, do you see how Paul just totally blows this out of the water? Because for Paul, preaching was more important than baptizing. Not that he was opposed to baptism. Nobody should get that idea. Of course not. But we can see by Paul's regarding that baptism wasn't so important that baptism is not essential to salvation. If it were, if the teaching of baptismal regeneration were true, then Paul could never thank God that he baptized so few in Corinth. Could you imagine Paul saying, I thank God that not many people came to Jesus Christ? Never. I thank God that not many people were born again. Come on, he'd never say it in a million years. And he could never say, Christ did not send me to baptize. Christ sent Paul to bring salvation. And if baptism was essential to salvation, then you better believe, Paul would say, Christ sent him to baptize. The fact that Paul did not regard baptism as essential to salvation is also seen by the fact that he did not keep careful track of whom he had baptized. He says, besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. He wasn't notching his Bible every time he baptized somebody. I'll tell you what, I bet you Paul remembered his converts. I bet he remembered when Sosthenes came to the Lord, but he didn't remember who he baptized. So, I think this passage also makes it clear, as well as telling us that baptism is not essential to salvation. My friends, God forbid anybody would leave this room thinking that baptism is not important. It's very important. And it's an act of obedience that everybody who names the name of Christ should undergo. Absolutely. It's a physical demonstration of what's happened in your life spiritually. And it's an important declaration to every angel in heaven and every demon in hell that you belong to Jesus Christ. Baptism is important. We're just saying that it's not essential. But the passage also makes it clear that the individual doing the baptism doesn't really affect the validity of the baptism. In other words, those people who were baptized by the great apostle Paul had no advantage over those who were baptized by some unknown believer. The power of baptism isn't in who's doing it, it's in the spiritual reality that it represents. I don't know if you've ever been one of these marvelous baptisms that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa has down at Corona Del Mar. And there's Pastor Chuck uh, in the water there with this tremendous cove, and there's thousands of people there, and there's hundreds of people getting baptized. And obviously, Pastor Chuck can't do all the baptizing. I mean, there's not enough time in a day for him to do all that baptizing. And so there's other pastors around doing the baptism. And you know every person who does not get baptized by Pastor Chuck is disappointed, right? Oh, I was just hoping that Chuck would do it. And you know that everybody who does get baptized by Pastor Chuck, it's like, yes, you know, like I got something special from the Lord. Well, look, it's very understandable, right? It's human nature, but it's not biblical. There's no extra special blessing. There's no little special dove that comes down from heaven because... (laughs) Chuck Smith or Billy Graham or some other spiritual giant baptizes you. The power is in the spiritual reality that baptism represents. Now, let's conclude with a look here at verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross should be made of no effect. So how did Paul preach in Corinth? Well, he did not preach with wisdom of words. A a way to to think of that phrase, perhaps a better way to translate it, would be to translate it cleverness of speaking. 
Paul didn't go around preaching with clever speakers' tricks. Paul came speaking the gospel plainly without any attempt to dazzle his audience with eloquence or intellect. Now, I think it's interesting because we know from Acts chapter 17 and 18 that Paul came to Corinth from Athens. On Athens, he contended with the great philosophers of the day on Mars Hill, and he presented the gospel to them. But I think that Paul didn't like preaching to the philosophers so much because he had to kind of put things in terms that they could understand and quote this Greek poet and quote this. I think Paul said when he got to Corinth, man, this city is sinful, but at least I can just lay it on the line here. I can just preach the gospel plain as day and, and the philosophers won't turn their nose up at it. Because do you notice what can happen here at the end of verse 17? He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I think it's a frightening possibility that Paul puts in front of us here. That it is possible to preach the gospel in a way that makes it of no effect. Do you understand that, my friends? That, that the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation, but it's possible for somebody to present it in a way that strips it of its power and makes it of no effect. If someone preaches the word of God with a reliance on wisdom of words or cleverness of speaking or the intention to dazzle or or impress their audience, they can make the gospel of no effect. My friends, this should sober every preacher of the gospel and it should wake up every person who listens to the gospel because the great gospel of Jesus Christ, the very power of God unto salvation can be made empty and of no effect through the pride and cleverness of men. Friends, that's awesome power. Now, I don't think it's easy. I think a preacher has to work at it. I think he has to say within his heart, Subtly or plainly, yeah, look what I can show these people. I've got them in the palm of my hand. Let me see how I can move this audience. Let me see what I can do with them. Let me see how I can impress them, how I can endear myself to them. You do that and you're going to make it empty and of no effect. And friends, this danger was constantly on the mind of the Apostle Paul and it should be constantly on the mind of any preacher or teacher. I'm not going to present the word in a way that makes it of no effect. Friends, let's come back just in conclusion, this whole issue of divisions. Have you divided yourself in a tearing, ripping way from other people in the body of Christ? I'm not talking about making distinctions of saying, you know, well, this is my church and I like to go here and I prefer this church over other churches. That's not the the matter. But have you divided your own heart against other believers? Let me just ask you this. When the body of Christ is torn in two, who bleeds? Jesus bleeds. We need to ask God to work in our hearts that wonderful unity of the Spirit. Not an institutional unity, not an organizational unity, but that true unity of the Spirit 
that the Bible teaches we should all have.